listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Melanie Hallis and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded on location at the ABA's Antitrust Law 2017 Spring Meeting in Washington, D.C. Joining me now, I have Doug Tween and James Muchnick. Welcome to the show, Doug and James. Thank you, Melanie. Hi there. Um, Before we get started, please tell us a little bit about yourselves. Well, I'm Doug. I'll start. I'm a partner at Linklater's in New York and Washington, D.C., and I'm the head of the firm's U.S. government enforcement and cartel practice. Uh, My practice is essentially cartel and other white-collar criminal matters. Um, Before going into private practice, I spent 15 years as a trial attorney at the U.S. DOJ Antitrust Division in the New York field office. So it's Jim Muchnick, partner at Kirkland & Ellis. I'm based in Chicago. I'm an antitrust lawyer, so it runs everything from merger control, but most of my work is cartel defense, private litigation, government facing. I've been at Kirkland for 17 years. Before that, like Doug, I worked as a trial attorney in the antitrust division for nine years. And before that, Doug and I went to law school together. We went to Northwestern, go Cats. I actually take some responsibility for Jim being an antitrust lawyer. Jim and I met on the first day of law school, and after graduation, I was a law clerk for one year. Jim had a two-year clerkship. So after my one-year clerkship, I went to the antitrust division and remember talking to Jim and saying, you know, it's pretty good. I like it. You should apply. And he did. And so therefore, I suppose I am as much to blame as anyone for Jim being an antitrust lawyer. But then again, I left before you did, when you were still at the government, and you needed to find out how much money you could make on the other side. So that's why you're in private practice. That's true. Because I was making way more money than you. That's definitely true. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, We're here to discuss Dawn Raid. So to start off, Doug, what is a Dawn Raid? Well, Dawn Raid, or in the U.S., really, it's um, a search warrant. In Europe, the terminology is Dawn Raid, but it's really the same. It's when enforcers and agents show up, typically at a company, with some sort of process. Again, in the U.S., it would be a search warrant that gives them the right to search and seize uh, for materials that may be relevant to a suspected violation of law. So in the U.S., typically the practice is a squad of FBI agents will show up first thing in the morning when a business opens and filter out through the building, taking custody of various documents and in particular electronic documents imaging from a company's central server, often every electronic document that a business has. Thank you for that. And Can I add one more part of the Dawn Raid in the yes. U.S. that's important? And it's a little bit different than where they do it in elsewhere in the world, which is the FBI agents try to interview as many people as they can. So part of the job is for the FBI or the government authorities to take documents, but they're also trying to interview, get information, sort of rock the house to get the whole investigation moving. That's a big part of it. Thank you. And so what is at stake in a Dawn Raid? Well, just about everything. You know, it, because it's the beginning and it's relatively rare, it's a big statement by the government that we have lots and lots of evidence already and we're taking what we need to finish the job. It's more like in the middle of a case 
even though the government may not have let the company know until that second. Yeah, in the U.S., in order to get a search warrant, the government has to make a showing to a federal judge of probable cause that evidence of a crime will be found in the place to be searched. And so it's a higher standard than, for instance, a grand jury subpoena where they can really send it out with a very, very low threshold of proof. It's certainly a signal that the government believes that they have substantial evidence of a violation and are looking to get more. I mean, one of the things to keep in mind is that it's a huge investment of time and money for the government to conduct a search as opposed to um, sitting back and letting a company produce documents pursuant to a subpoena. The trade-off for the government is that they think they get the smoking gun evidence because it doesn't get destroyed and they think that companies often will destroy um, relevant evidence if they are given the time to produce it pursuant to subpoena. Because of the element of surprise, the government thinks they get better smoking gun evidence when they do a search. I mean, the standard would be for a grand jury subpoena, how long does it take you to hit the print button versus getting a judge, getting the antitrust division to approve it, which is often even harder than getting a judge to say yes. It's months versus seconds for a prosecutor. That's interesting. And when are you typically hired? Does your client know that the dawn rate is coming and you're already engaged in the case? Is there a typical situation? Uh, it would be great if I was, we were on site, but that doesn't happen. <laughs> Even the best of clients with like private jets to have you respond, it's always in reactive mode. And most companies have today have some level of search warrant response protocol or when the government shows up, how the front desk is supposed to operate, call the general counsel. It'll take at least a day or more for some defense attorney to show up. It's always a fire drill, and I can recall getting panicked phone calls from clients thousands of miles away saying, what do we do? The FBI is in my office taking all of my records and documents. And it's really, you know, it's really for the first 48, 72 hours, really a question of damage control, trying to learn as much as you can, trying to get control of what the government is taking, trying to keep the business operating while all this is happening and if possible getting copies of essential documents it really is very much panic mode and it's really very as jim said just very reactive and it takes at least 48 or 72 hours for the dust to start settling we work hard with our clients to make sure they have a search warrant response protocol because if you're if the goal is some level of control like doug said if you have no prep for it you're out of control so the more you can do in advance, the better off you are. Oh, yeah. Cases are won and lost in that 48 hours. And after the raid, what's the next step? What do you do with your client or with the government? Well, you try to figure out what they got, which is difficult because usually they just take it. And you have to ask people what it is that you think is missing. Really, the job is to figure out the interview piece of it because the people they can't take. So they're still left behind. So to try to understand what the FBI was asking questions about, what are the topics, who they talk to, and making sure we as defense counsel can get that same information that the government got from the people is probably more important than the document piece because the rules are eventually the government has to give you everything back. So you can be worried about privilege and get distracted about the fight over the things 
but it's much better to focus on the people. I mean, one of the things that'll happen immediately during a dawn raid, as soon as possible, is typically the agents will give you the name of the lead prosecutor, and you try and get that person on the phone as soon as possible. Um, sometimes it's tough because the DOJ and other agencies around the world will do try to do coordinated dawn raids where they'll strike everyone at the same time in order to avoid as much destruction of evidence and to sort of preserve as much evidence as they possibly can. Um, so that prosecutor might be fielding calls from five or ten different lawyers at the same time who are all trying to find out basically what's going on. Um, one of the things to throw out there immediately, and this is something Jim referenced, is to – I will always say you are – scooping up and taking privileged documents. And so nobody better look at anything you've taken until you've done a privilege review or at least we've coordinated or else whoever is exposed to privileged materials could arguably be walled off from the investigation. And so that's kind of one way I've found to maybe a little bit put the brakes on what is a situation that is really rapidly moving otherwise. How does it work, Doug? Not very well, I would imagine. No, it does. I've had situations where they will take a pause. They'll take everything, but they won't look at it. And they'll sit on it for a while until we've had a chance to say, well, you know, in this person's office, you would have taken privileged, you know, arguably privileged stuff. They'll set it aside. They'll try to carve it out. It actually can work because if they, if attorneys are exposed to material that is attorney-client privilege, we're going to do everything we can to knock them off the case. And you know, for the DOJ, setting up a taint team, which is to set up a separate team to review information before the case team looks at it, is a huge investment of time and resources and not something they necessarily want to get into. One thing to think about, we talked about going after the documents and slowing the government down, worrying about the people. Probably the area that the lawyers are called on right away is to figure out what disclosures have to be made. So whether it's a private or a public company, who do you have to tell that the government just visited you, if anybody? And how you advise companies that a raid is unusual? Do you have to tell your shareholders? Do you have to tell the auditor forming the board and getting them on to figure out what to do? That's sort of just the mechanics of who knows what and what to do about it is a big part of that first week or so at the most. What's the most interesting case you've been involved in with a Dawn raid? I had the very good fortune of working on um, a big antitrust case in the mid-90s. And it was against companies that sold uh, chicken and pig feed. But it was still cool to, besides that. So my job was to, assigned to be the liaison between the FBI and the antitrust division to plan a global dawn raid scenario where I got to run the, I don't know, the command center as like a young attorney. And one of the phone calls that I received from one of the companies that we raided was the former prime minister of Canada that happened to serve on the board. And he called me and said, you know, are you Jim Muchnick? Yes. What are you doing? And I got to tell him that we're taking all your stuff. It was a fantastic moment. <laughs> I'd say for me, one was when I was a prosecutor, and we did um, we did a search of a of a company, and literally had fifty agents. Fifty agents had to rent um, a U-Haul truck to take away all of the paper because this company had so much paper in addition to electronic data. 
The funniest part of it was during the search, the CFO who basically kept all of the records drove into the parking lot. He came to work late, ran and, and saw what was happening, zoomed out, drove home, fired up the barbecue and threw all kinds of records on the barbecue. The best part was he said his wife saw what he was doing, came running out of the house with an armload of papers, threw them into the fire, and he never found out what she destroyed. That's really interesting. <laughs> and how are you involved in the antitrust section? Uh, are you involved in anything related to Dawn Raids as well? Well, I'm the co-chair of Compliance and Ethics Committee for the last three years, and so I would like to think that, yes, uh, Dawn Raids are governed by rules of ethics and compliance. Um, before that, I was the co-chair of the Cartel and Criminal Practice Committee for three years, and Dawn Raids certainly fit directly within the scope of that committee's work. So my first job in the section was um, staffer on the Cartel and Criminal Practice and Procedure Committee, and then I grew up into being the chair of that committee for, I think I was in stoppage time for a while, and now I've rotated, and I'm currently the chair of the International Cartel Task Force, which is job is to meet with regulators and enforcers around the world and to align practices and procedures and help new regimes, which are really starting out for the most part, and thinking about how to tackle dawn raids, how to improve their practices, what to do when guys like Doug and the defense community are ob obstructing their activities by claiming privilege, if it exists. And we tend to meet with oh, maybe five to ten different enforcement regimes over the year to try to see what they're up to. It's a very unique part of the section because all of our work is done uh, in confidence. So we don't disclose who we meet with or any of the specific information that we uh, share between the task force and the enforcer, which we think allows for an open dialogue about how to better practice the things we all do which is competition law. So you're meeting in smoke-filled rooms and trying to come to some kind of secret agreement. I understand. <laughs> yes, that's why we do it. We're learning from our clients to make sure it works out well. <laughs> okay, and our last question, um, do you see any trends related to dawn raids in your practice? They get later and later throughout the day, so they may have to think about changing the name. <laughs> you see more of them uh, in outside of the United States. So, you know, I always joked that the best thing that could happen to a U.S. public company is a dawn raid in Canada. And the more dawn raids that happen outside of the U.S., because in the U.S., uh, the subject of a dawn raid has very little procedural mechanisms to challenge the investigation or the process. But the more dawn raids happen overseas and they have a different level of due process, the more control the defense attorneys can have by playing games with that process. So the more dawn raids happen everywhere, the better control we're going to have of all things. I mean, I guess I'd make two observations. One is in the U.S., as I said before, it's still a big investment of time and resources on the part of the government to take a large number of FBI agents, divert them from whatever else they're doing, and send them for a day or more 
to a company to collect documents. So it's a, it's a big effort for the government to do that. I mean, I would say in my experience, still a significant majority of cases, the antitrust division proceeds by a subpoena as opposed to search warrants. So um, I'd say, you know, because of, as much because of the investment of resources as anything else. The second thing is in Europe, dawn raids are very, very common. Clients are very sensitized to them. And more and more clients will go so far as to do mock dawn raids where they will have people come in and pretend they are enforcers and do what the enforcers would do to prepare employees to um, respond to dawn raids and also to almost as sort of an audit function. I haven't seen a lot of appetite among U.S. clients for that, but among the Europeans, there is definitely um, an appetite for that. Yeah, I'm against the mock dawn raid in the U.S. because it just freaks out your employees. It tends to, to lead to confusion. And if you're going to deal with it once, just have the written protocol. Train people what to do, not put them through the fake exercise of making people cry. That doesn't serve any purpose whatsoever. It's pretty intimidating. Just look at Doug. If he was showing up across, you'd be intimidated right there. <laughs> Certainly would. Yes. But Doug, why do you have a babysitter here from Linklater's, if you can explain it? You can't be trusted? To make sure I keep with the uh, appropriate answers without disclosing client confidences. Well said, sir. Unlike you, who just disclosed all kinds of client confidences. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks like... But I'm the chair of the Compliance and Ethics Committee, so I'm particularly sensitized to ethics issues. <laughs> thank you. It looks like we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank Doug and Jim for joining us today. And if our listeners have questions or wish to follow up with you, how can they reach you, Doug? Um, they can send me an email at douglas, D-O-U-G-L-A-S dot tween, T-W-E-E-N at linklaters.com, or they can uh, see me at the... DOJ alumni party tonight from 6 to 8 at Del Frisco's. And Jim? Jay Muchnick, M-U-T-C-H-N-I-K at kirkland.com, 312-862-2350. Thank you. This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Melanie Hallis. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you, Melanie. Thanks, Melanie. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.